السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ احمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي ربنا زدنا علما so are you ready for your review so from the beginning of abwab sifat as-salah inshallah we will do a review did you make your questions the ones that i assigned to you yeah how many questions did you come up with Three only. So inshallah what we're going to do right now is if you open up the beginning of the abwab sifat as-salah we'll take a few abwab at a time because remember that the arrangement of the abwab is also to serve a particular purpose it's not like haphazardly whatever came into his mind Imam Bukhari just put it that in salah this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you're supposed to do and this is not allowed and this is better no it's all in a sequence Right? So we will go according to the sequence and you will see that in this arrangement there are many, many lessons that we learn. Many things that are explained in a subtle way. So the first section that we're going to look at is about takbir and raf'ul yadain. What is takbir? To say Allahu Akbar. What is raf'ul yadain? Raising of the hands. Now remember that every time takbir is mentioned, it does not automatically mean raising the hands also. Alright? Takbir means simply to say, Allahu Akbar. And if the hands have to be raised, then that will be mentioned separately. Alright? So, the first bab is, Ijabi takbiri wa iftitahi salah. The second bab is, Raf'i al-yadayni fi takbirati al-ula ma'a al-iftitahi sawa'an. Third bab is رَفْعُ الْيَدَيْنِ إِذَا كَبَّرَ وَإِذَا رَكَعَ وَإِذَا رَفَعَ Then إِلَىٰ أَيْنَ يَرْفَعُ يَدَيْهِ And then رَفْعُ الْيَدَيْنِ إِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّكْعَتَيْنِ So basically we're going to look at the first five abwab. The first question that I have for you is that takbir, is it wajib? Yes. Which takbir is wajib? First of all, takbiratul ihram. What is takbiratul ihram? Explain it. To say Allahu Akbar and raise one's hands in order to begin the salah. Can the salah be begun without saying the takbiratul ihram? No. How is it that you enter the salah with takbiratul ihram? What are the words of takbir? Allahu Akbar. Can you replace these words? Can you substitute them with something similar? So for example, Allahu A'zam. Why not? Because the words kabbara, takbir have always been narrated. And when these words have always been reported, then we cannot replace them with any other words. So it has to be Allahu Akbar. Alright. Another question with regards to Raf'ul uh, Yadain. That the first takbir, is it just pronouncing takbir or is it with Raf'ul Yadain? It is with Raf'ul Yadain. How is it that a person should do both of them? Meaning say takbir and uh, raise the hands. How? At the same time. Alright. What are the three valid possibilities I mentioned to you? Three valid possibilities. It could be a little bit before raising the hands. Okay. A little bit before raising the hands that a person says Allahu Akbar and then he raises the hands. So there is a slight difference Okay, in the time. Second, Simultaneously and the third, the other way around. Okay. Are all of these three ways valid? 
Yes. As long as it's approximately at the same time, then it is permissible. All right. Um, when should the hands be raised with the takbir during the salah? At what times should the hands be raised with the takbir during the salah? Yes. Start from the beginning. So takbiratul ihram. Secondly, one going down into rukur, when rising from the rukur, and obviously it's understood that when a person rises from the rukur, then you don't say Allahu Akbar, but you say something else. But at that time, hands have to be raised. Then, let her think, please. Then. Okay. Getting up into the third rakah. So basically, after the first, tashahud. Okay. Now, over here, you must also look at the different proofs of Raf ul during the salah. Because many ahadith have been mentioned. So this, this review is also, I'm doing this for the purpose of preparing you for the test. Okay. So make sure you know at least one or two evidences. Okay. So you don't have to memorize the entire hadith. But you have to have some evidence. Okay, so for example, I mentioned to you earlier that at least uh, 17 companions have been reported to have narrated this action of the Prophet ﷺ. Amongst those 17 companions are also 10 Ashram al-Bashra. I also mentioned to you some statements of Imam Bukhari and other scholars regarding Raf ul Okay, and all of the ahadith that are mentioned, you can you can remember them as the hadith of such and such companion. Okay, the hadith of such and such companion, which is mentioned in Bukhari. Alright, what is the hikmah? What is the hikmah, the wisdom behind raising of the hands? Raf ul What is the hikmah? Now look into your notes, and this is something that you should remember because this can come in the test. Yes. Okay, so the blind one, he can hear the takbir. And the deaf one, he can see the takbir. So each person will know that the salah has begun. Whether they can hear or they cannot hear, whether they can see or they cannot see. Any other hikmah? Wisdom of raising the hands. Yes. Good. Alright. Another question, last one with regards to the section, that up to where should the hands be raised? Excellent, mashallah. Hadwaman kibayhi, parallel to the shoulders. In another report, what is mentioned? Up to the ears. Does any report mention touching the ears? No. So, all of these ahadith combined, what do we understand? The hands have to be raised somewhere between the shoulders and the ears. Okay. The next section is going to be about qiyam. What is qiyam? Standing in the prayer. So basically a person has begun the salah. And here we're going to look at, firstly, the positioning of the hands. So the two abwaab that we're going to look at are the next two, which are وَضْعِ الْيُمْنَ عَلَى الْيُسْرَ and الْخُشُوعِ فِي الصَّلَةِ وَضْعِ الْيُمْنَ عَلَى الْيُسْرَ What does that mean? The hand, the right hand should be placed on the left. Okay, so the first question I have for you is that in qiyam, where should the hands be placed? On the chest. Should they be on the sides? Should they be on the navel? Under or above? Okay. Where should they be? Where should they be rested? 
on the chest. Now here you you should also look into the reason behind that, the wisdom behind that, uh, as well as the evidence of that. Okay. How should the hands be placed on the chest? Okay. Right hand over the left hand. Because there are some narrations which mention the arm, which mention the wrist. So combining all of them, what do we understand? That the right palm must be placed on the left wrist. Okay? And that the right hand should be slightly, uh, you can say, holding on to the left wrist. Not that it's just resting on it, but there should be like a, a firm grip. Khushur fi salah. What is the relevance of this? Khushur fi salah with uh, placing the right hand over the left on the chest. What's the link over here? Why does Imam Bukhari mention khushur immediately after the position of the hands? Because it shows most humility. When the hands are on the chest and they're placed in this way, then this is what expresses humility. Okay. Uh, next section that we're going to look at is istiftah, which is the dua on beginning the prayer. So, Bab, ma yaqulu ba'da takbir. So, what should be said after the takbir? What should be said after the takbir? When a person says, Allahu Akbar, he places his hands, okay, on his chest, then what does he say? Does he begin with Surah Al-Fatiha? Dua of istiftah. What's the evidence of that? Okay. Who asked him? Now you should remember this. Okay? Abu Hurairah Because the Prophet ﷺ used to remain silent after beginning the prayer and before reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. So Abu Hurairah asked him that what is it that you say? So the Prophet ﷺ told him about the dua that he would recite which is known as dua of istiftah. Now we learned about one dua in Bukhari but are there any other duas? Okay, so you could be asked in your test to at least write one du'a or complete it. If not, write the whole thing, at least complete it. One du'a, any du'a of istiftah, is it possible? It could be this one, the one that you read in Bukhari, or it could be another one. But obviously something that you have been made to memorize in class. Is that fair? Why do you look scared? (laughs) Writing Arabic. Why? Why? Alhamdulillah, you've studied the entire Qur'an, most of you, and after reading so much Arabic, would it be difficult to write it? Honestly, tell me. Okay, write it in English then. Yes. Okay. If you're not confident about the Arabic, write it in transliteration form. Okay? That's something that you can do. But you have to know at least one du'a. Why? Because if you don't learn it for the test, then when will you learn it? So this is just an excuse for you to make sure that you really know the du'a well. Okay? Inshallah. Alright, and remember that this includes the ta'awud also. Because in the du'as of istiftah that I mentioned to you, uh, the ta'awud was included in that. Then we're going to look at the next set of abwab, which are concerning... What contradicts khushur? رفع البصري إلى الإمام في الصلاة Looking at the Imam in the Salah رفع البصري إلى السماء في الصلاة Looking at the sky uh, 
during the salah, iltifat fi salah, looking right and left during the salah, then hal yaltafitu li amrin yanzilu bihi aw yara shay'an aw busaqan fil qibla, that can a person look around if there is something uh, you know important, necessary, urgent, can he move his gaze away from the place of sajda somewhere else, for example the wall or to the right or to the left for an urgent matter? Okay, so the first question is that during qiyam, where should a person's eyes be looking at? What should a person be looking at? The place of sajda. Okay. Can the imam look in front of himself? For no reason. Just like that, he looks at the wall, he stares at the wall. Can he do that? No. Can he look at the wall in front of him? Yes, he can. However, there must be a reason for that. Can the ma'moom look at the imam? Throughout the salah? When? Good. To see where the imam is. Alright. Is there any evidence for this? What's the evidence? That the ma'moom can look at the imam. What's the evidence? Let's say you join the prayer behind the imam and you don't know where the imam is because you joined them in the sajda. Now you don't know when the imam said Allahu Akbar if he's standing up or if he's sitting in jalsa or tashahud. So you want to look. Can you look? What's the evidence that you can look? Yes. The Sahaba reported that they saw the beard of the Prophet ﷺ moving in Qiyam. So if they saw his beard moving, what does that mean? That they looked at him. Looking up to the sky in Salah, is that permissible? No. Is it a sin? What kind of a sin? Of the major sins. Why? How is it a major sin? What's the evidence? Because there was a severe warning concerning that. What was the warning? That the eyesight could be taken away, could be snatched away. So when there's such a serious warning of severe consequences, then that means that the action is a sin. So during salah, a person must not look up at the sky. Okay, iltifat. What are the different kinds of iltifat? Iltifat means to look or to turn here and there. Okay, so what are the different kinds of iltifat? Mainly, how many? Two. First is iltifat of the, start with the qalb. Okay, so one is the iltifat of the heart, which means that a person is distracted. So instead of focusing on what he's saying, what he's doing, his heart is distracted, he begins to think about, he begins to remember other things. Does this invalidate the prayer? No, it doesn't invalidate the prayer, but what does it do to the prayer? Exactly, that the reward is lost. The second type of iltifat is of the badan, which is either that a person is moving his eyes, because eyes are part of the body, so he's looking here and there unnecessarily, or he turns his body. So for example, he turns his neck to look. Okay? Or that he moves to the you know back or forward or right or left unnecessarily. This kind of iltifat, is this permissible? No, it is not permissible. Okay. And remember the ahadith concerning iltifat, that what is it? When a person looks or turns his neck, you know, to the right or to the left, even for a few moments, then does it cause loss to his prayer? That it is something that shaitan steals from the prayer of the servant. Okay. Yes. Remember that... Any movement which is made in the prayer for the purpose of perfecting the prayer, for the purpose of, you know, better performing the salah, okay, that movement is permissible. 
even though that movement may not be a part of salah, but that movement is permissible. So for example, a person is praying and they realize that there is no sutra in front of them and everybody's, you know, walking around. Let's say they have to complete three rakah, all right, and they have no sutra in front of them. And obviously by the time that they will conclude their salah, what will happen? People are going to be walking around. So they see that the pillar of the masjid is literally a step away from them to their left. Can they take that step? Yes. Okay? That movement is permissible. Likewise, in the row in front of a person, there is a gap. Can they step forward and fill in that gap? Yes, they can. Because otherwise, who will come? Shaytan will come. Right? Likewise, a person made sure before the salah that their hijab is proper, but during the salah what happens? Their hijab you know, opens up or something. Can they fix it? Yes, they can. The next section is about qira'ah. Recitation during the Qiyam. So there are several abwab concerning this. First of all, وجوب القراءة للإمام والمؤمن في الصلوات كلها في الحضر والسفر وما يجهر فيها وما يخافته. Recitation of Surah Al-Fatiha is it mandatory for who? Everyone. What? A, what if a person is traveling? What if a person is performing nafil prayer? Okay, so if a person is praying behind the imam, then clarify. What should be done? Yes. Okay, now organize this. Okay, organize this. There's two kinds of prayers. One is jahri and the other is sirri. Jahri is which one? In which the recitation is loud. So the imam is reciting Surah Al-Fatiha out loud. In that situation, the ma'moom, is he going to recite? There is difference of opinion. But if he listens to the imam over there, because the imam is reciting for everybody, then that is permissible. He does not need to recite. When it comes to Sirri Salah, where the imam is reciting silently, then the ma'moom, what is he supposed to do? Recite silently. Anything I've missed out on this? Alright, so the recitation of Surah Al-Fatiha is, is mandatory. Even Nafal Salah? Sure? Okay. Recitation of Surah Al-Fatiha, it is mandatory, okay. But is it mandatory in Sidi Salah and Jahri Salah? Yeah? Okay. What's the evidence of that? That in Sidi Salah, a person has to recite Surah Al-Fatiha. Did the Prophet ﷺ recite? He was silent. How did the people know he was reciting? The movement of his beard. Okay, good. So what does that show? That in Sirri Salah, when a person is reciting, how should he be reciting? With his mouth closed? The movement of the mouth, meaning as a person generally recites, the only thing missing is the voice. Alright? So in Sirri Salah, when the Imam is reciting, how should he recite? Okay, silently, but how? Throughout the recitation he's silent? Okay, good. That he may make an ayah or two here and there audible, so that the people behind him can hear. What's the reason behind that? In order to alert the people? 
and also in order to make them realize that he is still reciting. That they should not be standing quietly, rather they should also be reciting. Okay. Jahri Salah. Which one is that? Fajr, Maghrib and Isha. The Imam. Is he supposed to recite loudly? Okay. What about Munfarid? The person who is praying by himself. He's not following another, he's not leading another. He's praying by himself. Is he supposed to recite out loud in these prayers? He has the option. He may do so. Why? Good. That the ruling of Munfarid is the same as the ruling of Imam. Okay. And technically, the Munfarid should recite out loud. Technically, in these prayers. All right? However, if reciting softly or without making the recitation audible is better for his khushur, then he has that option also. Okay. In Jahri Salah, can an ayah of sajda be recited? Can it be recited? Okay. And if it's recited, then what should be done? Sajda tilawa should be done. In four raka'a salah, how should the recitation be? Explain. Four raka'a salah. How should the recitation be? Meaning, how long should it be? That the first two raka'at will be longer than the second two. How will they be longer? That in the first two, after Surah Al-Fatiha, is more recitation from the Qur'an. And in the second two, there is only Surah Al-Fatiha. What about the first two raka'at? How should their length be? Same? The first one has to be? Longer. What if by accident or without thinking a person reads a shorter surah in the first rakah and a longer in the second? It's completely fine. Why? Aren't there so many ahadiths which say and Imam Bukhari also proves that the first rakah should be longer than the second? What's the evidence? Yes. Uh-uh. I gave you a dalil and you should know the dalil. Because otherwise you know how to pray, alhamdulillah. Why are we studying all of this? It's to solidify our knowledge, right? And our understanding. The first part of your answer was right, but the example you gave was not right. That there are instances where the Prophet ﷺ read a longer surah in the first rakah and a shorter in the second. For example, Surah Al-A'la and Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Hmm? He read Surah Al-A'la in the first rakah, Surah Al-Ghashiyah in the second, and Surah Al-Ghashiyah is slightly longer than the first surah. So there is no harm if the first rakah happens to be longer than the second. Sometimes there is no harm. Yeah, exactly. Shorter. Jazakumullah khairah. Okay. So when a person is reciting in the salah, can he recite more than one surah? What's the dalil? The companion who would read Surah Al-Ikhlas in every rakah of every salah. Right? And after Surah Al-Ikhlas, he would read another surah. The Prophet ﷺ did not object. Okay. Can a person recite a portion of a surah and not a complete surah? What's the evidence of that? Umar anhu he recited a few verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. Example of the Prophet ﷺ. Yes, that he recited Surah Al-Mu'minun and then he coughed 
right? When he reached the mention of Musa alayhi or Isa alayhi salam, and then he went into Rukur. All right. And remember the ruling concerning Tanqis also. I'm not going to go over it right now, but you should know the different kinds of Tanqis I explained to you. Then we have the issue of Ta'meen. What does Ta'meen mean? Saying Ameen. So we'll look at the next few abwab, which are Jahril Imam bil Ta'meen and Fadl Ta'meen and Jahril Ma'mum bil Ta'meen. So in Jahri Salah, should the Imam say the Ameen out loud? What about the Sirri Salah? Should he say Ameen out loud in Sirri Salah? So for example, in Zuhur prayer? No. In which Salah? Only in Jahri Salah. Alright. Why should he say it out loud? Exactly. So that the Ma'moom may say Ameen with him. So the Ma'moom should say Ameen after the Imam's Ameen or with the Imam's Ameen? With. Why? Okay, because you cannot perceive the Imam, but why not after him? Because you want to say Ameen with the angel. So what is the reward of saying Ameen along with the Imam? Exactly, that the angels say Ameen at that time, and if a person's Ameen coincides with the Ameen of the angels, then all the past sins will be forgiven. Alright, now with regards to takbir. Bab ida raka'a duna saf, itmami takbir fi rukur, and itmami takbir fi sujood, at takbir ida qawma min sujood. Takbir. When should it be said? Before going down into rukur, after going down into rukur, when? While going down into rukur. Okay. Meaning it should be with the movement. When should takbir be said in the salah? How many takbirat are there? 22. In how many rakar salah? Four. Okay, which takbirat are there? Starting from takbiratul ihram. Okay. Going for rukur. Okay, make it simpler. Make it more simple. Five in each rakah. Five times four is twenty. Add to this five one takbiratul ihram and the other takbir on getting up from the second. First the shahud. Okay. How are there five takbirat? Going down into rukur, going down into sajda, getting up from sajda, going down to second sajda, and getting up from the second sajda. Alright? Remember, getting up from rukur, you don't say takbir. Good. So that makes it 22. And that is what is, what was confirmed by the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Now you should also look at the hadith and remember them. Okay. Now when it comes to rukur, more abwab on this. أمر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم الذي لا يتم ركوعه بالإعادة الدعاء في الركوع. In rukur, where and how should the hands be placed? On the knees and how? Grabbing, firmly positioned over there. Okay. Um, what is complete rukur? Itmam al-rukur. How is that done? Complete rukur. 
that first of all, the back is straight. Okay. Secondly, that a person becomes completely balanced and still. Itma'nina. Okay. Uh, what if rukur is not complete? Then the salah is not complete. What's the evidence of that? Okay. One companion, the Prophet ﷺ, made him repeat his prayer several times because his rukur was not complete, his sujood was not complete. But um, another hadith, which more clearly tells us that if the rukur is not complete, then salah is not complete. The companion saw someone praying, and they were not completing the rukur and sujood, and he said that if you die doing this, then you are not on the fitrah, you are not on the deen of Muhammad wasallam. Okay. What should be said in Rukur? What should be said in Rukur? Okay, yes, but what is that called? Tasbih and Dua. Tasbih and Dua. Alright? Tasbih, Ta'zim, because the Prophet ﷺ said, Awlimu. Do Ta'zim of your Rabb in Rukur. So, Subhana Rabbi al Alim, for example. And tasbihat, which kind of tasbihat? Different tasbihat that we learn about. Subhanahu Rabbil Alim is one of them. Now you should know at least three or four. Okay? How many have you memorized so far in class? Five? Okay, alhamdulillah. So hopefully by the time you have your test, you should have memorized more than that. Okay. After tasbih, what else should be said in rukur? Dua. Dua for what? Forgiveness first of all. And then any other dua. Okay. Now, next set of abwab are about the rising from the rukur, which is the second qiyam. مَا يَقُولُ الْإِمَامُ وَمَنْ خَلْفَهُ إِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُورِ فَضْلِ اللَّهُمَّ رَبَّنَا لَكَ الْحَمْدِ and اِطْمَأْنِينَ حِينَ يَرْفَعُ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُورِ What should be said on rising from rukur? Okay. And when a person says that, then what should be said? Rabbana walakal hamd and Rabbana lakal hamd or Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd or Allahumma Rabbana walakal hamd. Now these four versions, they have been mentioned over and over again in so many ahadith that we have read over here. So what should a person do? When there's different wordings narrated, okay, then what should a person do? He can read any, but what is best? That he varies it. Alright? And this is with regards to all the adhkar in salah. From dua istiftah to rukur, to rising from the rukur, tashahud, uh, sajda. Uh, when there's different duas that have been reported and a person has the ability to memorize them, then what should he do? He should he should bring this beautiful uh, variety in his salah because this is what brings beauty to the salah. Okay. Now from these four, okay, which one is the best, most virtuous? Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. Why do I say that it's the most virtuous? Fadli Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. Hmm? And under this Bab, Imam Bukhari brings a hadith. Which hadith? 
Which hadith? Uh, once the Prophet وسلم, he said that when the Imam says, The Prophet وسلم, taught these words that you should say this because whoever's word saying coincides with that of the angels, then So did you try to say this? Or did you go on your on your old ways? It's good. Continue that. But also add this. Allahumma Rabbana Lakal Hamd. Say it. Good. Okay. Now on saying Allahumma Rabbana Lakal Hamd, what else should be said? Or may be said? More Hamd and Tasbih, as we learn. So for example, the words Hamdan Kathiran Tayyiban Mubarakan Fi, or for example, Mil Asamawati wa Mil Al Ardi wa Mil Amashikta Mchayim bin Bardu, right? Or there's so many other different tasbihat and the words of Hamd that we learn. Okay? That may be said. What else can be said? Dua can be made at that time. Dua for who? Oneself, someone else, especially who? Those who are oppressed. And at the same time, dua can also be made against. Likewise, a specific dua can be made, which is known as qunut nazila. And you know about that. And this dua can be made in which salah? On rising from rukur. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Witr understandable, but over here, why are we doing this? Any salah, you forgot? The ahadith that we read, what do they mention? Zuhr salah, Asr salah, Maghrib salah, Isha salah. Right? So, if in the fard prayer, whether sirri or jahri, the Prophet ﷺ made dua, on rising from the rukur, what does that mean? That this dua can be made in any salah, not just witr. Any salah. Whether it is fard, sunnah, nafil, any salah, dua can be made. Look, look at the ahadith again. Hadith number 805, this is the number that I have, Bab 126. Haddathana Mu'adh ibn Fadalata, qala haddathana Hisham, an Yahya, an Abi Salamata, an Abi Hurayrata, qala... لَأُقَرِّبَنَّ صَلَاةَ نَبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ فَكَانَ أَبُوْ هُرَيْرَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ يَقْنُتُ فِي الرَّقْعَةِ الْآخِرَةِ مِنْ صَلَاةِ الظُّهْرِ وَصَلَاةِ الْعِشَاءِ وَصَلَاةِ الصُّبْحِ بَعْدَمَا يَقُولُ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ فَيَدْعُ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَيَلْعَنُ الْكُفَّارِ So in this hadith we see the action of Abu Subh, Fajr. Okay. So this hadith shows to us that you can make it in these fard prayers. And that, you know, by extension applies to any salah. But here we see last raka'ah. Okay. We also learned other hadith about this. Where, I think later it comes. Which hadith is that? Haddathana Abdullah ibn أبي الأسود قال حدثنا إسماعيل عن خالد حذاء عن أبي قلابة عن أنس رضي الله عنه قال كان القنوت في المغرب والفجر that this قنوت would be in Maghrib and Fajr so dua can be made on rising from Rukur after Tasbih, Tahmid okay dua can be made 
And it does not have to be qunut as in the dua qunut that we make in witr. Okay? Any other dua. So make it for yourself and for others. Why at this time? Remember that one dua is made outside of salah. Whether it is after salah or at any other time. And another dua is made during the salah. Which one would be better? During the salah. Why? Because you are already engaged in an act of worship. And what are you doing in salah? You are praising Allah, glorifying Him, drawing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wasjud waqtarib. Through sajda, through salah, a person draws closer to Allah. So what better time to make dua than this time? Right? In tashahud, we learned that the Prophet ﷺ said that a person should choose any dua that he wishes for himself, فَيَدْعُو And he should make dua. Why? Because in tashahud you have praised and glorified Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have testified to His oneness. And then you have also sent salawat in the Prophet ﷺ. And then you make dua. Right? So imagine the chances of dua being accepted at that time are very high. And dua, what is it essentially? Heal ibadah. Dua is ibadah. So many times we are performing the salah and we're just, you know, repeating the words that we have learned, you know, without even thinking. But when a person stops in the middle to make dua, that makes the salah even more meaningful. So remember that dua can be made in rukur. It can also be made in the standing position after rukur. Okay? You know, you don't have to raise your hands at that time. Okay, because remember there's two positions. Okay, the hands may be placed on the chest or they may be on the sides. And when a person is in that position, then he will glorify Allah, tasbih, and after that also make dua. Now, different adhkar, you should also remember them. Hopefully, inshallah, you'll reach there also. After you complete the du'as for rukur, then dua for qiyam also. Tama'nina. During this position. Is it necessary? Okay. What is tamatnina? You should be able to explain it. Where should the hands be placed in this position? We went over this. There's two valid opinions. And what are they? Either on the chest or on the sides. Okay. Next set of abwab are about sajda. Beginning from yahwi bit takbiri hina yasjud, then fadli sujud, uh, all the way to at tasbih wa dua if sujud. So, when should takbir be pronounced when going into sajda? While going down to sajda. Okay. On going into sajda, should the hands go first or the knees? You should know the answer. Okay. And what is the answer? Either is fine. Okay. What is the virtue of sujud? What is the benefit of sujud? From that long hadith, what do we learn? Yes. That the fire of hell will not consume the parts of the body on which sajda is done. Even if a person is burnt in hellfire, punished in hellfire for the sins that he has done, those parts of the body on which sajda was done, they will be untouched by the fire. And what are those parts? The palms. What else? The knees, feet, forehead. And the nose. And it is by these parts that the angels will 
recognize the people who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and on recognizing them the angels will take them out of the hellfire. So this is a fadl of sujood. Okay. What is complete sujood? How is sajda done in a complete and perfect manner? On seven bones. And which ones are they? The two hands, the two knees, the two feet, that's six, and forehead. And the nose obviously is understood. Okay. So on the seven bones. All right. How else is sajda supposed to be performed? That the arms should be away from the sides of the body. What else? Good. That the arms should be raised so that the elbows are not touching the ground. What else? The thigh and the chest are not touching. What else? Toes should be facing the qibla. So toes facing the qibla, knees firmly resting on the ground, head and nose, meaning forehead and the nose touching the ground also, and hands, palms straight on the ground also. During sajda, what is forbidden? Okay, placing the elbows on the ground. What else is forbidden? Something with regards to the clothes. That a person should not gather them up in pride, preventing them from touching the ground. Rather, he should let his clothes, and for a man, obviously, his hair also, if it touches the ground, let it touch. Unless, unless the aura is going to show, and because of that, he gathers up his clothes. What should be said in sujood? Tasbih wa dua. Okay, now which tasbihat? You should remember them. Now after this is jalsa. Al-mukthi bayna sajdatayn. Between the two prostrations is a jalsa, a sitting. And this jalsa, how long is its duration? Similar in length. Equal, if you say equal, then it means exactly the same. Similar in length to what? Two, sajda, rukur, and qiyam, meaning the second qiyam. What should be said in jalsa? Rabbi khfirli, Rabbi khfirli. How should one sit in this jalsa? Iftirash. Okay. And with, with tamatnina. Okay. Don't forget this tamatnina. It's very important. Okay. And what is iftirash? Two ways. Isn't there one way? Two ways. Are you sure? Okay, tell me what is iftirash? That you position your right foot upright. How? With the toes facing the qibla and sit on the left foot. So the left foot is laid down and a person sits on it. Someone said to me, why, why don't you show to us how to do this? I said, I want to use words. And not just show you, because if I show you, I will say, like this. And someone who's listening online will not be able to see what like this means. Or someone who's going to listen to the recording later will not be able to understand what like this means. And you should also be able to explain through words how to you know, sit in a particular position or stand in a particular position. So during your test, don't draw a picture. Okay, Use words to explain. So this is iftirash, one manner of iftirash. What's the other manner? What's the other way? Good. 
that both the right and the left foot are positioned upright with the toes flexed so that they're facing the qibla. Clear? Okay. If a person chooses to sit in this manner during this jalsa between the two prostrations, should he have tuma'nina? Yes. He should still have tuma'nina, meaning he should sit still. He should come to a complete rest, complete stop before moving on to the next sajda. Okay. Now, jalsa istiraha. باب من استوى قاعدا في وتر من صلاته ثم نهض كيف يعتمد على الأرض إذا قام من الركعة أن يكبر وهو ينهض من السجدين وكان ابن الزبير يكبر في نهضته جلسة استراحة When is it done? Between two sajdas Good When getting up When rising from Sujood in which rakah? Odd rakah. Just remember that. Odd rakah. The first rakah and the third rakah. Okay. Jalsa istiraha. If a person sits in jalsa istiraha, how should he sit? Iftirash. With? Tumatnina. Good. What is the ruling concerning jalsa istiraha? MashaAllah. Just make one correction. Mustahab. Okay. Mustahab indal haja, meaning it is not mandatory, but it is mustahab, it is sunnah, it is better indal haja, meaning when there is a need. What is the purpose for ease? Okay, what is the purpose behind this? For ease. Is it a rukun of salah? Prove it to me. Good, mashallah. It doesn't have any dhikr before it, during it, or after it. So it's not a rukun, it's not a pillar of salah. Rather, it is a, uh, you can say it's convenience for the musalli, facilitation for him, that when he is getting up, he finds it difficult to stand straight, you know, immediately, then he has this allowance that he may sit before rising. How should a person take support when he's standing up from sujood? With his hands. Okay. Now, tashahud. Sunnah al-julusi fi tashahud. Man lam yara tashahud al-awwala wajiban. At-tashahud fi al-ula. At-tashahud fi al-akhirah. Ad-du'a'i qabla salam Ma yutakhayyaru min ad-du'a'i ba'da tashahudi wa laysa biwajib. How many tashahuds are there? Don't just say two. Explain when. Okay. In four rakah salah, two tashahuds. Are they both obligatory? Think and give me your answer. Okay, so both are obligatory. However, the obligation of the first one is lighter than that of the second one. What's the evidence of that? That if a person misses, he forgets the first tashahud, then his salah is still valid. All he has to do is just perform, sujood the sahu at the end, but he does not need to repeat the entire prayer. Does this mean that a person can deliberately leave the first tashahud? He's in a rush, so he says, you know what, it's not really wajib, so let me leave it altogether. Can he do that? No. He cannot do that. But if he misses it accidentally, then his salah is still valid. How to sit in the first tashahud? Iftirash. And remember the two ways. How to sit in the second tashahud? Tawarruk. And how many ways are there of sitting in tawarruk? Two ways. Which ones are they? The qibla. Okay. Okay, good. So the first is, the right foot is positioned upright with the toes facing the qibla and the left foot is 
taken off to the right side of a person. So a person is not really sitting on his left foot, rather he's sitting on his hips. Alright? And the second way is, meaning the toes are not facing the qibla, rather they are just, you know, facing the back of a person, meaning the foot is resting. This is the only difference. You understand? The difference is in the right foot. In the first manner, they're facing, the toes are facing the qibla. In the second manner, the toes are not facing the qibla. There's a third way also, which inshallah I will tell you in the next class. Okay? There's a third way also, which I learned about recently. I was amazed that uh, how beautiful is our deen. That if a person cannot sit in this way, okay, he can sit in this way. And if he cannot sit in this way, okay, he can sit in that way. There's so many options so that a person is as close to the sunnah as possible so that he can accumulate most reward from this beautiful act of worship. Okay. Uh, the words of the shahud, what is their origin? The words of the shahud, what is their origin? The origin of these words is that the people when they would sit in the shahud, they would say, As-salamu ala Jibreel, As-salamu ala Mikail, and they would go on saying salam to different, you know, sending salam to different people, different angels, different righteous servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the point that some even said, As-salamu ala Allah. Hmm? So the Prophet ﷺ, he corrected them that no, don't say As-salamu ala Allah because Allah, huwa As-salam, he himself is As-salam. And if you go on mentioning one servant after the other, how many will you mention? And how many will you leave out? So he told them to say, Ala ibadillahi salihin, and that would include which servants of Allah? Every righteous servant of Allah, that is where? In the sky or in the earth? I was thinking about this, that in the earth, I mean, this also includes those lying in the graves. Right? So this is so beautiful, the words that the Prophet ﷺ taught. They're so jamir, so comprehensive, that they include what you cannot even think about. What you cannot even you know, mention with your own mouth, because your thinking might not even reach there. So the Prophet ﷺ said, when you say, As-salamu ala ibadillahi salihin, that includes all the servants of Allah. So this is the origin of the words of the shahud. Is the origin of these words the incident that is reported to have happened when the Prophet ﷺ went on Mi'raj? No. Why? Because there is no basis for that. That when the Prophet ﷺ went from Mi'raj at Sidratul Muntaha, he prostrated to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he said, At-Tahiyyatulillahi wa salawat. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded to him. And then the Prophet ﷺ responded, No, there is no evidence for this. There is no basis for this. The only basis of these words that we learn about is the incident that I mentioned to you earlier, that where the companions, they would say in the shahud different, different uh, things. So the Prophet ﷺ advised them to say something else. Okay. Now the words of the shahud, can they be changed? Should they be changed? What about As-salamu alayka ayyuhan nabiyyu? Why? Why should they not be changed? Because the Prophet ﷺ would not advise the companions to do that. And we also learned that Umar anhu once on the mimbar, when he was a Khalifa, on the member he said the words of the Shahud. And obviously in front of him was who? Other companions. And they did not 
correct him. They did not object that why are you saying assalamu alayka ayyuhan nabiyyu when the Prophet ﷺ has passed away. Right? So if they did not object and the companion of the Prophet ﷺ said those words then what is the instruction for us that we should also we should also say the same words and not change them to for example assalamu alan nabi. Okay. Now after the tashahud the dua of the shahud, what should be said? Hmm? Salawat on the Prophet ﷺ. And after that, what should be said? Hmm? Any dua. Okay. But from the duas, which one should we make? Musnoon. Because as we see, the words that the Prophet ﷺ taught, they are most perfect. The next few abwab are about the taslim. But before we move on to those abwab, there is a couple of things that I would like to mention with regards to tashahud. Okay. When it comes to tashahud, one is the sitting position, which is tawarruk. Right? I mentioned to you earlier that there are two ways. Okay. However, there is a third way also. I'd like to show it to you with a picture. So I'm not going to confuse you with the words. Inshallah, I will show you the picture as well as explain in our next session. Okay. But Besides that, one more thing about the shahud, which is the positioning of the hands. Toes, it's understood, that is with tawarruk, right? Either facing the qibla or not. What is another issue is the placing of the hands. Where should they be placed? The right hand, how should the finger be moved, if at all, and when? How should all of this be done? Now remember that when a person sits in the shahud, both the hands should be placed where? On the, you know, somewhat on the thigh and the knee. So basically the fingers should be facing the qibla. Alright? And from some reports we learned that the fingers should be slightly dropped. You understand? So if they're right on the knees, okay, then they would be kind of curved. If the palms are on the thigh, and the fingers are on the knees, all right? Then this would be best. Abdullah ibn Zubair radhiallahu anhu said, "This is a hadith in Muslim that when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam sat during the prayer, he would place his left foot between his thigh and calf. He would place his left foot between his thigh and calf, shin, and that is a third way of tawarruk, which I will explain to you later." And he would tuck his right foot underneath him and place his left hand on his left knee. So this is of relevance to us. He would place his left hand on his left knee and place his right hand on his right thigh. And he would point with his finger. This is reported in Sahih Muslim. Now this hadith and many other ahadiths, they prove to us that the Prophet ﷺ in tashahud, he used to point with his index finger, okay, and he would move his index finger during the tashahud. Now when is it that a person should move the finger and how is it that a person should move this index finger? This is a matter of difference of opinion. The Hanafi scholars, they said that the finger should be raised only when a person says la, meaning la ilaha illallah, ashadu an la ilaha illallah. So only when a person is saying that, then 
he should raise his finger. Before that, he should not raise his finger. Okay? The Shafari said that it should be raised when saying, Illallah, meaning on the mention of Allah's name, then the finger should be raised. The Maliki said that it should be moved right and left. It should be moved, the finger should be moved how? Right and left. Not up and down, but right and left. The Hamali scholar said that one should point with the finger when saying the name of Allah, meaning when mentioning the name of Allah. He should just raise it without moving it. So now there is a couple of problems over here. Which is that, should you move it up and down? Should you move it right and left? And when is it that you should move your finger? Okay. Now, Shaykh Al-Bani, he said that there is no basis for any of these definitions and manners in the sunnah. There is no basis for any of these definitions and manners. What we learn from the sunnah is that the Prophet ﷺ raised his finger and moved it. Alright? Now, did he raise his finger and move it when he said, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad abdu wa rasulu? Did he raise his finger at that time? Does the hadith mention? No. Does the hadith state that he raised his finger and moved it, you know, when he said, At-tahiyyatu lillahi wa salawat? No. Exactly with which dua, with which dhikr, it doesn't mention anything. Likewise, the manner, the maximum that we learn is that he raised it and moved it. He raised it and moved it. And that we learn from a hadith, which is reported in An-Nasai, Ibn Khuzayma, Ibn Majah, and it's a sahih hadith in which Wail ibn Hajar, عنه, he reported that when the Prophet ﷺ, he sat in tashahud, he put the edge of his right elbow on his right thigh. He put the edge of his right elbow on his right thigh, which shows to us that our arm should not be raised up in tashahud. Rather, the arm should be resting on the thighs as much as possible. You understand? Arms should be resting on the thighs as much as possible. If you think about it, it's more humble. It expresses more humility. And he held two of his fingers and made a circle. Which two fingers? The thumb and the middle finger. He joined them together, made a circle, and then he raised his forefinger and moved it, making dua with it. The Arabic words are, ثُمَّ رَفَعَ إِصْبَعَهُ رَفَعَ رَفَعَ إِصْبَعَهُ فَرَأَيْتُهُ يُحَرِّكُهَا Yuharrikuha, moving it. Yad'u biha, making dua with it, meaning with its movement. So there's three things in this hadith. First of all, rafa'a. Secondly, yuharriku. And thirdly, yad'u. Now, from these three words, you understand how the finger should be raised and when and how it should be moved. And Shaykh ibn Uthaymeen, he quoted this hadith. These very words as evidence that moving the finger during the tashahud should be done with every phrase of dua. Meaning, each time you are making any dua in tashahud, what is it that you do? That is when you raise the finger and you harriku. Now, before we move on to raising the finger, just one thing about you harriku. How should it be moved? Right, left, Right, left, round in circles, or just, you know, vibrating almost? How? The exact movement we have not been taught. Alright? 
And we should not say, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. What we learn is that the finger should not just be raised up and down. Some people just restrict it to the raising you know, it up and down. It should be raised when dua is being made, but not that it's just raised and made to stand still. No, move it over there. Move it over there. And this is a matter of ijtihad. Some scholars, like for example, the Maliki said right and left. And others said something else. So movement should be there. Some kind of movement. You understand? Some kind of movement should be there. There is no one right way. You have to raise your finger, okay, and move it. Either right and left, motion it gently, or uh, shake it a little bit, vibrate it almost. Okay. Now with regards to raising the finger, when is it that you raise it? Shaykh bin Zaymin used the hadith to prove that with every phrase of dua. So for example, in tashahud, you begin by saying, At-tahiyyatu lillahi wa salawat wa tayyibat. Okay. And then you say, As-salamu alayka ayyuhan nabi. You're basically asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send peace and blessings on who? The Prophet ﷺ. Is that a dua? Yes. So, he said that, for example, when you reach As-Salamu Alayka, Ayyuhan Nabiyyu, then you raise your finger and you move it slightly, vibrate it slightly. Okay. Then after that, the next dua that you make is As-Salamu Alayna. As-Salamu Alayna. So, when, so you said As-Salamu Alayka, Ayyuhan Nabiyyu, you brought it down. Then when you're saying As-Salamu Alayna, then again you? Lift it up and move it slightly. Okay. Then you conclude the dua of tashahud and you move on to salawat in the Prophet And you say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin. So again you raise your fingers, gently move it, bring it down. And then you say, Allahumma barik ala Muhammadin. Right? So again you raise your finger and gently move it. Then after salawat in the Prophet you move on to your duas. So for example, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adhab al-qabri. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adhab Now practice this and you will notice you'll be more involved in it. As opposed to just reading and moving. Right? We're just reading on and you wonder, did I say salawat in the Prophet or not? And we're just moving, 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 moving. So there is a proper etiquette. And what is that? That your actions should be with your words. You see? Allahu Akbar. You say Allahu Akbar and you raise your hands. You're reciting Surah Al-Fatiha and your hands are on your chest. Correct? So likewise in tashahud, don't just randomly keep moving your finger without even thinking about it. Move it. But with what? فَيَدْعُوا بِهَا Make dua at the same time. So every time you're making dua, you're saying words of dua, that is when you lift up the finger and Move it gently. <clears throat> What's the hikmah? What's the wisdom behind raising the finger and moving it? The reports narrated from the Sahaba and Tabi'een concerning this matter indicate that what is meant by pointing with the finger is an indication of affirmation of Allah's oneness and sincerity. So you are basically affirming Allah's oneness. So every time you're making dua, you raise your finger. Only Allah. I ask only Allah. Because only He can give. He is one. So this is affirmation of Allah's oneness. 
Pointing with one finger is a practical declaration of faith in Allah, the one who has no partner or associate. So it is appropriate that starting to point with it should come when starting to say the words of the shahada or declaration of faith as well. And also, along with that, every time a person makes dua. One more thing, that every time a person raises a finger, okay, remember it is sunnah to look at your finger. So basically in tashahud, it is masnoon that you should be looking where? At your finger. Hadith in Abu Dawood tells us that and he should not let his gaze go beyond his pointing finger. He should not let his gaze go beyond his pointing finger. So, for example, in Qiyam, your eyes are where? At the place of sajda. But in Tashahud, when you're raising your finger, okay, throughout the Tashahud, your eyes should be where? On the finger, not beyond that. Is there a difference? Is there a difference? It shows more adab. You know when there's someone whom you respect a lot, it's almost as though you cannot look directly at them out of extreme, you know, fear or not just fear, but adab and respect. Right? Awe. When you're in awe of someone, you cannot look at them straight in the eye. Never. You can't do that. When a person is sitting before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then again that awe should be visible. And how? That he does not even look beyond his finger. He doesn't even look at the place of sajda. One more thing, that when a person is moving the finger, the objective is to point it towards the qibla. The objective is to point it towards the qibla, because that is what the hadith tells us. Abdullah ibn Umar said that he saw, uh, sorry, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, he once saw a man moving pebbles with his hand during the salah. So during the salah, what was he doing? He's sitting in the shahud and he's moving pebbles, distracted. When he finished, Abdullah ibn Umar said to him, Do not move pebbles while you are praying, for that comes from the shaitan. Rather, do what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to do. He would put his right hand on his thigh and pointed with the finger that is next to the thumb. And which finger is that? The pointer finger. And he would point it towards the qibla. And he fixed his gaze on it. Okay? So another hadith tells us that he fixed his gaze on it. And then he said, This is what I saw the Messenger of Allah وسلم, doing. Okay. Another question is that when is it that a person should begin raising the finger and moving it and when is it that he should end? When should he begin? With the first dua. Okay, with the first dua. Which is basically just a few moments after you begin the dua of the shahud. Right? And when should he end? When should he stop? Huh? With the last dua. So basically... The entire duration of the shahud. The entire duration of the shahud. Each time the words of dua come, a person should raise his finger and move it. Okay. One more thing. Uh, in a hadith uh, in Musnad Ahmad, we learned that Nafir, he said that when Abdullah ibn Umar who sat during the prayer, he would put his hands on his thighs and point with his finger while looking at it. Meaning while looking at the finger, he would point with his finger, meaning towards the Qibla. And then he said that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, 
it is harder on shaitan than iron. That when a person raises his finger and moves it, this is harder on shaitan than iron, meaning this index finger. Because you know, when a person is doing sajda, shaitan cries, right? Shaitan cries. And when a person is sitting in tashahud, and with every dua, he's you know, physically demonstrating that he believes, he affirms the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's like shaitan is being struck with iron hammers or something. It's harder on shaitan than iron uh, hammers, meaning the index finger. And this hadith is classed as Hassan by Shaykh al-Bani. So it is uh, authentic, it's Hassan. It is definitely an acceptable hadith. What about the left hand? Where should the left hand be? On the left thigh slash knee. Sheikh bin Uthaymeen said that with regard to the left hand, it should be laid flat with all the fingers you know, close together and pointing towards the qibla. And the edge of the elbow should be at the end of the thigh. Meaning that he should not hold it away from the body, rather it should be resting on the thigh. One more thing, remember that when it comes to the raising of the finger, the movement of the finger, yes, the ulama have uh, used their evidences, and we see that some evidences are stronger than the other. So for example, the one that I mentioned to you about uh, raising it with every dua and moving it at that time, it seems stronger than other opinions. But remember that all of the varying opinions, they're a matter of ijtihad, meaning scholars gave their opinions based on their understanding. All right. So this is not a matter over which others should be looked down upon or they should be denounced or arguments and fights should be broken up over this. No. It says in Fatawa Al-Lajna Al-Daima that raising the forefinger in the tashahud is a sunnah and the reason behind it is to indicate the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the hikmah behind it. Whoever wishes may move it and whoever wishes may not move it. Meaning a person may move it from the beginning of the shahud until the end and there is another person who restricts it to just the uh, tashahud, the testification part. And this matter should not lead to division and discord between seekers of knowledge. If a person does not raise it at all or he raises it but does not move it, this is a minor matter. That should not lead to denunciation and resentment. However, the sunnah is to raise it throughout the shahadatain. And throughout the tashahud until the worshipper says the salam, meaning until the end of the prayer. Right? So, obviously, the more love a person has for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu the more a person wants to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more he wants to follow the sunnah. And for that, it doesn't matter which scholar said what, what matters to us is the action of the Prophet sallallahu So, once we find out about it and we observe it, good alhamdulillah. And others who don't know should not be looked down upon, rather they should be taught. This knowledge must be shared with them. And this difference should not become a source of division. Alright, after this is a taslim, which is the end of the prayer. And inshallah we will look at that in our next uh, class. But before that, before end, since we do have two minutes, the du'as during the shahud, hmm, you were given a copy of that. So, what are the different du'as that the Prophet ﷺ used to make after tashahud? One is, Allahumma inni zalamtu nafsi zulman kathiran, wa la yaghfiru dhunuba illa anta, faghfir li maghfiratan min indik, warhamni innaka anta al-ghafuru rahim. And this is reported in Sahih Bukhari. 
And we learned the hadith about this dua. That Abu Bakr asked the Prophet ﷺ, teach me a dua which I can make during my prayer. And the Prophet ﷺ taught him this dua. Now, this hadith and this dua is not an ordinary one at all. Because who is the sa'il? Who is the questioner? Abu Bakr anhu. And who was he? You could say that he was the most beloved companion to the Prophet ﷺ. You can say that very comfortably. He he had a great you know, position. He was very, very close to the Prophet ﷺ. So if he was asking the Prophet ﷺ something, what do you think the Prophet ﷺ would teach him? The best. The best of du'as. So this du'a is really you know, one du'a that we should definitely memorize and read in our prayers also. And notice how I mentioned to you earlier also that in this a person is basically mentioning his own state of sinfulness. He is praising and glorifying Allah that oh, Allah only you can forgive sins. Allah's names are mentioned, His attributes are mentioned. And notice فَغْفِرْلِي مَغْفِرَةً مِنْ عِنْدِكْ Forgiveness from you. Because what comes from Allah will be the best. Another dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to make, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adab al-qabri, wa a'udhu bika min fitnat al-masih al-dajjal, wa a'udhu bika min fitnat al-mahya, wa fitnat al-mamat, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-ma'thami wal-maghram. In this dua, basically, the Prophet ﷺ sought refuge. Right? And there is a hadith in Sahih Muslim, and it's also narrated in other books of hadith in which Abu Hurairah عنه, he said he reported that the Prophet said that a person must seek refuge before ending the prayer, meaning after the tashahud, a person must seek refuge the, the Prophet said when any one of you completes the last tashahud, he should seek refuge with Allah from four فَلْيَتَعَوَّذْ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ أَرْبَعٍ He must seek refuge with Allah from four things. And what are those four things? مِنْ عَذَابِ جَهَنَّمْ وَمِنْ عَذَابِ الْقَبْرِ وَمِنْ فِتْنَةِ الْمَحْيَةِ وَالْمَاتِ وَمِنْ شَرِّ الْمَسِيحِ الدَّجَّالِ And because of this hadith, because the Prophet ﷺ said, فَلْيَتَعَوَّذْ He gave a command. He said, he must seek refuge. Because of this, Imam Ahmad was of the opinion that it is wajib to make this dua at the end of the salah. They said just as the words of tashahud are wajib, saying at-tahiyyatu lillahi wa salawatu tayyibah, that is wajib. They said making this dua is also wajib. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, فَلْيَتَعَوَّذْ And there are numerous reports in which we see that the Prophet ﷺ made a dua in which he sought refuge against these four things that are mentioned over here. In other versions, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-ma'thami wal-maghram also. Another dua which the Prophet ﷺ used to make, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adabi jahannam wa min adabi al-qabr wa min fitnat al-mahya wal-mamat wa min sharri fitnat al-masih al-dajjal. Another dua, Allahumma aghfir li ma qaddamtu wa ma akhartu wa ma asrartu wa ma a'lantu wa ma asraftu wa ma anta a'lamu bihi minni anta al-muqaddim wa anta al-muakhir la ilaha illa anta. O oh Allah, forgive my former and latter sins, those which I have done secretly and those which I have done openly and whatever I have transgressed and those faults of mine about which you have better knowledge than I have. You are the one who sends forth and you are the one who delays. There is no true deity except you. 
Another dua which is in Sunan al-Nasai, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-bukhli, wa a'udhu bika min al-jubni, wa a'udhu bika an uradda ila arda lil-umur, wa a'udhu bika min fitna al-dunya, wa a'udhu bika min adab al-qabr. O Allah, I seek refuge with you from miserliness, and I seek refuge with you from cowardice, and I seek refuge with you from reaching the age of senility, and I seek refuge with you from the trials of this world, and I seek refuge with you from the torment of the grave. Another dua, Allahumma inni as'aduka ya Allah, bi'annaka al-wahidu al-ahadu الصمد الذي لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا احد ان تغفر لي ذنوبي انك انت الغفور الرحيم O oh Allah, I ask you, O oh Allah, as you are the one, the only one, the self-sufficient master, who begets not, nor was he begotten, and there is none equal or comparable to him. Forgive me my sins, for you are the ever-forgiving, the all-merciful. Allahumma inni as'aluka ya Allah, الأحد الصمد الذي لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد أن تغفر لي ذنوبي إنك أنت الغفور الرحيم A slightly smaller version of the previous one Then another one is اللهم إني أسألك بأن لك الحمد لا إله إلا أنت المنان بديع السماوات والأرض يا ذا الجلال والإكرام يا حي يا قيوم إني أسألك O oh Allah, indeed I ask you, since all praise is due to you, there is no true deity except you, the bestower, the creator of the heavens and the earth, O oh possessor of majesty and honor, O oh ever-living, O oh eternal one, I ask you. And the last one that we have over here is, as reported in Sunan al-Nasai, Allahumma bi'idmika al-ghayb wa qudratika ala al-khalq, ahyini ma alimta al-hayata khayran li, wa tawaffani idha alimta al-wafata khayran li, Allahumma... وأسألك خشيتك في الغيب والشهادة وأسألك كلمة الحق في الرضا والغضب وأسألك القصد في الفقر والغنى وأسألك نعيما لا ينفد وأسألك قرة عين لا تنقطع وأسألك الرضا بعد القضاء وأسألك برد العيش بعد الموت وأسألك لذة النظر إلى وجهك والشوق إلى لقائك في غير ضراء مضرة ولا فتنة مضلة اللهم زينا بزينة الإيمان وجعلنا هداتم مهتدين O oh Allah, by your knowledge of the unseen and your power over creation, keep me alive as long as you know that living is good for me and cause me to die when you know that death is better for me. O oh Allah, cause me to fear you in secret and in public. I ask you to make me true in speech in times of pleasure and of anger. This is so important. Because we say good things when we're happy. But when we're angry, when we're upset, what are the things that we say? I ask you to make me moderate in times of wealth and poverty, and I ask you for everlasting delight and joy that will never cease. I ask you to make me pleased with that which you have decreed, and for an easy life after death. I ask you for the pleasure of looking at your face and a longing to meet you in a manner that does not entail a calamity that will bring about harm, or a trial that will cause deviation. O oh Allah, beautify us with the adornment of faith and make us among those who guide. and are rightly guided. وَجْعَلْنَا هُدَاتًا مُهْتَدِينَ آمين. Okay, inshallah, we'll conclude over here. Any other questions that you may have about Sifat al-Salah, please do ask them. And hopefully within a few more sessions we should complete this book. Inshallah. سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمْ وَبِحَمْدِكَ نَشَدُوا اللَّا إِلَهَا إِلَّا أَنْتَ نَسْتَغْفِرُكَ وَنَتُوبُ إِلَيْكَ السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَ